We've got some draft changes to Division 7A, which in some sense make UPE's companies simpler because the options are more limited, but in another sense make them much more complicated given the timing of when that UPE arises with the note that generally people will use the calculation method and not quantify UPEs in fixed figures. The rules are complicated enough. It takes long enough for people to understand this whole gap and so forth anyway. This is really a change that should be fixed up by legislation, not by a, a reinterpretation of when financial accommodation arises. So I think the ATO's more lenient view previously was probably about right, but now we've got at least a draft on what the new rules are going to be. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 339 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The ATO has been busy and has issued not one, not two, not three, but four publications in one hit that are all aimed at Section 100A ITAA 36, not 97, but 36, looking at unpaid present entitlements and reimbursement arrangements. Today, let's focus on Draft Tax Determination 2022 D1, so TD 2022-D1, which covers the Division 7A issue around unpaid present entitlements. Here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne with some very helpful insights. Section 100A is probably not a particularly well-known section of tax law prior to these recent announcements. The very quick history on Section 100A is that it was introduced in 1979 so over 40 years ago. It is almost incomprehensible to actually read the legislation. It's about eight pages long. And even as a practicing lawyer, it's very difficult to read. And it was initially, or the original purpose behind its introduction was to counter arrangements that were described as trust stripping. So the typical sort of arrangements that were intended to be caught were arrangements where a beneficiary with a low or no tax rate was introduced into the trust as a beneficiary. And then a very um, overt, in a very overt manner, a distribution was made to them that no one ever intended that they benefit from. So, so sort of fairly straightforward things that would be thought about now as tax avoidance. So that was the intention of the section. And it's more or less lay dormant for the last, 40 years. There's been a few cases on the section, but they've involved things that are not very common. There's been talk in the last few years of this section coming more into, into practitioners' view. The ATO has been applying it to audits, and there was a recent case in the federal court concerning Section 100A. So introduced a long time ago, very little public guidance on the section and it's it's drafted incredibly broadly as well so we've sort of had a it's almost like a volcano it's been sitting there and now it's sort of erupted so to speak but i think a, a skilled practitioner and a prudent practitioner would, would have been aware of it the entire time and they really should be aware of it the entire time so what it basically is trying to address 
is trusts for college kids and elderly parents who are not on a pension? That is definitely within the ATO's crosshairs and we'll go into it in a bit of detail. But that had nothing to do with the introduction of the section. It was nothing intended regarding children or family tax rates. But basically, the what I'll call family tax planning had absolutely nothing to do with the introduction of Section 100A. It was very artificial arrangements that 100A was intended to cover. However, the words of 100A are extremely broad. But who else would benefit from it? It's worth just noting why this is a problem in the first place. And it goes back to Division 6 and how trusts are taxed more generally. So the basic concepts are you need to look at who has been made presently entitled to the income of the trust state each year. If no person is presently entitled, then the trustee is assessed and they're assessed at the top marginal tax rate. If a person is presently entitled, then they're assessed on their share of the income based on what the taxable income of the trust is. So the words are present entitlement. Now, there's older case law about what present entitlement means in the first place. To summarize that, present entitlement is an ability to call for money doesn't require a payment to be made to you. It doesn't require money to be spent on your behalf or anything like that. All it requires is that you are entitled to that money. You're legally able to say to the trustee, can I have my money now? And there is no defense that the trustee has to that. It is, it is essentially the beneficiary's right to call for that. And if they were to then bring an action against the trust, the trust would have no defense for, for not paying that money. To make a beneficiary assessed on tax doesn't require that money is actually transferred to them. All that's required is that they are made presently entitled. So in other words, it's sufficient for the trustee to resolve that a person is presently entitled, but never, or no, sorry, I shouldn't say never, uh, but not transfer money to that person immediately. And the money could be used perhaps by the trust, could be reinvested, or it could be lent to someone else. And that's the main issue. It's how beneficiaries are actually assessed. Because if beneficiaries were assessed on what they received, there wouldn't be any uh, reimbursement type problems. So what's the issue here? Because beneficiaries are presently entitled. If you use the example of the college kids, they would be presently entitled. And if they ask their parents for this money, they would receive it most likely. So what's the issue? So the issue is that they're entitled to it and they're not calling on that entitlement. And essentially someone else is benefiting during the time that they don't call from it, whether it's the trust or another beneficiary. So that's what the ATO considers the problem to be and that they consider that to be or potentially to be a reimbursement agreement where there's an agreement formed between the trust, the adult college beneficiary and perhaps the parents whereby the, the entitlement is not going to be called on straight away and may never even be called on. It, whether or not an arrangement is going to be a reimbursement and fall foul of this section is, is another question. That really needs to be delved into in quite a bit of detail. 
testamentary trusts. Section 100A doesn't apply to testamentary trusts, correct? I'm not aware that testamentary trusts are excluded from 100A. I may be wrong on this point, but there's nothing in Section 100A itself that says that testamentary trusts are excluded from its operation. That is correct. There is nothing in Section 100A that suggests that Section 100A does not apply to testamentary trusts. So in other words, Section 100A does apply to testamentary trusts. But there is one big exception and that is minors, children under 18. Distributions to minors do not fall under Section 100A, be it a testamentary trust or a normal discretionary trust or a unit trust. So as long as you have a distribution to minors, no Section 100A. But for any distribution to adults, be it a normal trust or a testamentary trust, for any distribution to adults, you need to watch out for Section 100A. And I forgot to ask Andrew about anybody with a legal disability. So we spoke about minors. Being a minor is a legal disability, but of course there are other variants and scenarios where somebody can have a legal disability. I forgot to ask Andrew about that. My gut feeling is that the same rule would apply to anybody with a legal disability, but I'm not sure, so I shouldn't say anything. The main thing is to remember that Section 100A does not apply to any distribution to minors, be it from a normal discretionary trust or a testamentary trust. Let's go back to Andrew Henshaw. That's most likely the solution to the problem, isn't it? You have to pay the money out and then the person has to basically contribute it back to the trust as a capital contribution. The entire issue with all of these publications is if you pay a beneficiary their present entitlement, you do not have a problem. And that beneficiary doesn't then gift it back to someone else. If you make someone presently entitled and pay the money to them, you do not have a problem. You don't have a Division 7A problem and you don't have a reimbursement agreement problem. The problems start arising when you make someone presently entitled and the amount of money is not paid straight away or is never paid to that beneficiary, even though they've been lumped with the tax as a result of that present entitlement. But if the trust pays out the money and then the beneficiary contributes it back as a capital contribution, then it would be fine, correct? No, it's specifically listed in these examples as that that, that's, that is a big issue. So I'll just describe in 30 seconds on each what, what, are these, what each of these documents does, and then we can go into each one in detail. We have four documents. One is on Division 7A and the other three are on Section 100A. They were all released together because they're all to do with trusts making people presently entitled. We have one about Division 7A, which basically updates the ATO's views from 2010 about UPEs to companies. We have an alert about a very specific situation uh, involving parents benefiting children who are over 18 for expenses the children are purportedly reimbursing the parents for. And then we have one technical document, which is the ruling, which goes through the essential elements of Section 100A and a few examples. And then we have a PCG, which is the swim between the flags type guidance that the ATO is more in favour of issuing these days to accept, to help people assess their level of risk and how likely it is the ATO will look at their arrangements. So, to recap, there's something about Division 7A. There's a specific alert for a particular situation that the ATO do not like. There's a technical ruling to explain the elements. 
And there's a practical compliance guideline about certain examples of what's high and low risk. All up, it's almost 100 pages of, of, of rulings and legislation. And a lot of it is really dense and difficult to read, even for me. So it, it's tough stuff and it's, it's heavy going. And whether or not this makes it easier, I'm, I'm not sure it does. It, it definitely says that certain things are high risk, but I'm not sure that it does much beyond that. I just want to preface the rest of the conversation with the note that these are the ATO's views on the application of Division 7A and Section 100A. By and large, there's not been really any cases that are relevant almost in 10 years other than a case uh, called Guardian, which the ATO lost recently and which is on appeal. So the ATO did not make the law. Now, of course, if you're not following what the ATO think is, is the correct position, then be fully prepared to justify and explain and potentially have to, um, uh, you know, take your take your position to court. But it's worth noting the ATO do not make the law. Two questions. The first one is the ATO writes on their website that a lot of tax advisors had asked for more guidance and hence they are happily complying with this request. Do you think that's true? Do you think tax advisors or tax lawyers really were asking for more guidance on this? I think what people were asking for, and it was discussed over the last couple of years, they were asking for a bit more certainty because, and the reason why that's the case is Section 100A has no time limit on an amended assessment being issued. So in other words, if you did a reimbursement agreement in 1990, then the commissioner could conceivably, it's within the powers, they could assess you for that right now. So given that there's, it's essentially an unlimited amendment period, I think that, that is, was part of the desire to, to have some guidance. But that is crazy and basically infinite amendment period. That Why would we have a two or four year amendment period for everything else, but infinite for section 100A? Yeah. So that was the first point. The second point is that 100A, even though it was intended to cover quite specific situations, its drafting is incredibly broad and there's a few terms in it that are not defined and there's a question mark on what they actually mean. So those are the reasons why I think people were wanting some more guidance. I'm not sure it was, you know, everyone jumping up and down clamoring for this, but um There definitely was talk about it for a number of years. And the infinite amendment period probably comes from that they see these reimbursement agreements as fraud and evasion, and there is no amendment period for fraud and evasion, hence there's no amendment period really for Section 100A. Yeah, I think it's worth looking at it through the lens and just being aware that this was about avoidance, and that's why there's no amendment period limit. So if the section applies, the commissioner can go back indefinitely And if the section applies, basically the person who was made presently entitled is deemed not to be presently entitled and the trustee is assessed for tax at the top marginal rate. Actually, I have to correct myself. This is not just for college kids, but it's also for a non-working spouse or for a spouse that doesn't have the same amount of income like the other spouse. But even with that, you could put the investments just in joint names. But of course, if you don't want to, then you could use a trust to use the spouse's tax brackets 
Yeah, I would go even further. It's for any situation where the income of the trust isn't taxed at 47%, I think is the answer. Um, so unless everything's being taxed at the top marginal rate, then this yeah. potentially could, could apply. That's a very good point. And that's also why why the fuss. Because I, I first was thinking, you know, when I was just thinking of the college kid example, that is a very short time limit in a family's life that the kid is 18, but doesn't have their own income yet. But of course, it is much wider than that. And hence the fuss, because it doesn't just apply to college kids, it applies to anybody in the family that has a marginal tax rate of lower than 47%. You're right. Good. So Division 7A? So we've got tax determination 2022 slash D1. So this will replace TR 2010 slash 3 and the accompanying PSLA 2010 slash 4. So you remember that those were the ones that where the commissioner originally made uh, formed the view that unpaid present entitlements owing to a company would be financial accommodation and therefore a loan and therefore caught by Division 7A. The Commissioner provided a few different options on what to do in those situations, which were mainly contained in the practical, the PSLA. They provided options like a seven-year interest-only loan and a 10-year interest-only loan and acquiring a specific asset. They're all referred to as sub-trust arrangements. The alternative is a normal section 100N loan agreement. And my observation in practice was that there weren't that many subtrust arrangements around. Most practitioners either paid the UPEs or did section 109N compliant loan agreements. But there were some subtrust arrangements. And subtrust arrangements is basically that you have the UPE in the trust, it hasn't been paid out, but you put it into a separate account and you basically put the beneficiary's label in the account name and and then treat it as a subtrust, basically treat it as a separate account. That really was all it was, wasn't it? I mean, subtrust sounds very complicated, but it basically was just a separate account and you labeled it, labeled it very clearly. Yeah, it was just labeling as, well, this... This amount is, for, or this there is a, an amount for the benefit of Peter, for example, uh, Peter Price Limited. And since the ATO's views in 2010, there hasn't been any cases on that are directly relevant to any of this. The only thing that there were was two cases from 2012, which are cited in this updated ruling, neither of which are on Division 7A. Sorry, Andrew, can I go back one more time? You just corrected me and you changed Peter to Peter Propriety Limited. This is only an issue when it's Peter Propriety Limited, correct? Because if the UPE is to Peter himself, then it's not an issue. It's only an issue when we have a UPE to the uh, company, correct? Yeah, for Division 7A, it's only an issue if it's an unpaid present entitlement to a company. Exactly, but for Section 100A, it doesn't matter who, it, who the uh, reimbursement agreement is to. Yeah. So this ruling is it's almost 30 pages long and it's, it's a really heavy slog to read. So there's two, there's two main things that have come out of this ruling. Firstly, the ATO in all but the very, the most strictest settings will not accept a subtrust arrangement. If there's any intermingling of funds between the subtrust and the main trust, 
there will be financial accommodation and it will be a loan, even if it's done on a commercial basis. So in other words, unless um, you've got a sub-trust arrangement with a separate account and the money is never touched and it's just for the benefit of the company, you will be breaching Division 7A. Previously, the ATO said that, well, it's only financial accommodation if you're providing pecuniary aid. So essentially you're doing it doing a favour sort of, or the company's providing us some sort of favour. Now the ACO say that any situation is financial accommodation by just providing funds, even if there's a commercial basis for it, it's financial accommodation. So that means before we had three options, we could pay the distribution, we could do a 109N Division 7A loan agreement, Or we could set up a subtrust arrangement. So the subtrust just flew through the window. So that means we just have the two options left, which is either pay the distribution or set up a Division 7A loan as per 109N. Yeah. I mean, you can still do a subtrust, but it's it's practically there's no point. Effectively, it's sort of considered as it's not an option anymore, which in some setting senses makes The option's simpler <laughs> because there's just one less option. The other change which which I personally have a lot of problems with is around the timing of when the loan arises and when you need to put in place uh, a 109N agreement and make principal and interest payments. So under the, uh, the TR 2010-3, Essentially, you've got two years, basically, for, for a UPE. So to give you an example, if for the income year ended 30 June 2020, a trust resolves to make a company presently entitled, so UPE is created on 30 June 2020, it doesn't become financial accommodation until roughly 12 months later. So it becomes a loan sometime around 30 June 2021. And then that loan needs to be repaid by roughly May 2022 or a Division 7A loan agreement put in place. That surprises me. We have a trust distribution by the 30th of June 2020. So by then the money basically should be paid out or it only becomes an issue when that money hasn't been paid. Yeah. So so, it, But it only becomes an issue when the money hasn't been paid back by the time we lodge the 2020 tax return. So that will be May 2021. So how do you get to May 2022? So May 2021, is, that is when it becomes a loan. So, and that, so it's as if the company made a loan to a shareholder in the 2021 income year, which then has to be fixed by 2022, basically that different to a normal loan? Because I remember when we spoke about Division 7A, we went through the timing. If a company was to make a loan on 30 June 2020, it would need to, that loan would need to be repaid in the 2021 year. Exactly. That's That was the example. That's what we had said in a previous episode. But so with the trust, with the UPE, it's different. Yeah. In contrast, if a trust made a company presently entitled on 30 June 2020, It would only become a loan in the next year and then it would need to be fixed up essentially in 2022. And why is that? Why is it different if the loan is made from a company directly to a shareholder or if it's made from a trust to a company? Why Why is that? So for Division 7A, you need to work out when when 
when does the company make a loan to a shareholder or an associate? What the previous views are, and still are to some extent, is that the, the day that the company becomes presently entitled is not the day that the company provides financial accommodation. But if the company doesn't ask for its money within a certain period, it's then financial accommodation. Keep, okay. keep in mind that a UPE is not a loan, so it doesn't automatically fall within the definition of a loan. It only falls in the definition of a loan if there's financial accommodation. Okay, I'm with you. So basically, we have the income up to the 30th of June 2020, and it basically goes to the split second of midnight. Up to then, we collect all the income. And then in the first second of the 1st of July 2020, the beneficiary becomes presently entitled. You need a distribution resolution by the 30th of June. So that means the beneficiary is presently entitled in the first second of the 1st of July. But of course, that first second of the 1st of July is already the 21 tax year. That's how we basically get then to May 2022 because it, it's in the 2021 tax year and that tax return is due in May 2022. Is that how it works? Roughly. What the ATO say, what they said in TR 2010-3, is that if the ATO doesn't, sorry, if the company doesn't ask for its money within a reasonable time, it will then be providing financial accommodation. As an administrative thing, they, they allowed those sort of timeframes so that because everyone's situation is different, the company might have a different director. The resolutions might be recorded after 30 June, even though the resolution was passed beforehand. You, you know, there's different situations. So they basically said that, well, look, by that stage, The company knows, hasn't called for its money, it's providing financial accommodation. Hmm. It's still strange. Don't you find it strange? Or is it just me who finds it strange? Don't you find it strange that they are different, that there's a completely different way of looking at it when a company just makes a direct loan to a shareholder as opposed to a um, UPE from a trust? It is strange, but I mean, keep in mind that when Division 7A was originally introduced, everyone thought UPEs to companies weren't even part of it. So It is strange and sort of from a policy perspective, probably doesn't make any sense to make any difference between the situations, but it's because one is a loan within the ordinary meaning of the term loan and the other one is only a loan because it's financial accommodation and that financial accommodation doesn't take place at the same time. So okay. I, I agree. Good. Okay, so we basically then just need to accept it as a fact. If it's a normal Division 7A loan, then you need an agreement or a repayment by the time you lodge the tax return for that year. If it's a UPE, then you basically have an extra year. You had an extra year and maybe you don't anymore. Um, ah, I see. So, okay. so, so that's, the, that's a simple version of what, what, what I've just explained. And, and I should add as well, under the proposed changes to Division 7A, it was proposed that this thing would be gotten rid of for the sort of policy reason that they should all be the same. Okay, good. So until now you had an extra year with UPEs, but now this is changing. If the draft becomes law, this is changing and then then everything is the same and it will be May 2021 in our example. It's not that simple. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, this is my area of criticism about this determination. It's actually very complicated. It, I'll start with the simple and then we can go into the detail. What the ATO is saying is if the present entitlement is to a fixed dollar amount, so let's say the trust resolves to make 
company presently entitled to $10,000 on the 27th of June, 2023, for example. Then on the 27th of June, 2023, the company is providing financial accommodation on the same day because it knows the amount. It knows the amount and it can call on the amount. But if what the company is presently entitled to is not a dollar, it is 100% of the income or 50% of the income or the residual income, while those concepts can't be calculated immediately, they take a little bit of time to be calculated. And essentially what the ATO says is, well, the company doesn't really know what it can actually call for as at, in that example, the 27th of June, 2023. It only finds out what that amount is once the accounts are done. Hence, <laughs> it does not become financial accommodation until the following income year which try to explain this to practitioners and clients, it's, it's, it's a mess. So depending on how your resolutions are done and when they are done and when they are documented and who controls the trust versus who controls the company, it might be financial accommodation in, in the, the income year of the, of the present entitlement or it might be financial accommodation in the year after. And depending on which it is will determine when do I need to put in place a loan agreement? When do I need to repay it? How much do I need to repay it? So, you know, we had enough trouble explaining the basic situation with the difference between a real loan from a company and a UPE. Now we've got this, well, when does the, when, when, when is it financial accommodation? Okay. So it actually didn't get better. It got worse. It's because- yeah, it's gotten worse. Yeah. The practitioner's summary is, and I think what will happen in practice now is no one will do resolutions with fixed amounts for companies. I, I didn't really see that they did anyway. It was It's usually that you do the individuals first and then the balance, for example, to a, to a company anyway, but no, no one will do them. And the ATO's example is the trust resolves to pay 100% of the income to a company. And in that situation, they still say, well, the company doesn't know what it is. And I mean, I don't know if that's really correct. I mean, you could come up with a situation where on 1 July, the trust does something and earns money and then does absolutely nothing for the rest of the income year. Well, I mean, everyone knows what the income is going to be and surely they have some idea of what they'd be able to call for. So it seems to be very artificial to me and it seems to be not particularly workable and prone to people getting the years wrong and confused, leading to deemed dividends requirements to go seek the commissioner's discretion, all kinds of things. So, so in summary, with, with um, this draft tax determination, there's basically no subtrusts. Depending on how your income resolutions are drafted will, depend, will determine which year you've got a Division 7A issue. If it's a fixed amount, it's going to be earlier. And if it's a variable calculable amount, it's going to be as per the current rules. So that means the to-do list is don't do subtrust and don't do fixed amount distributions? Practically, I think that's what will happen in practice, yeah. And my last policy rant on this is that, I, look, I really think this should have just been, the rules The rules are complicated enough. And it takes long enough for people to understand this whole gap and so forth anyway. This is really a change that should be fixed up by legislation, not via a reinterpretation of when financial accommodation arises. Because I can come up with an example where 
let's say 30 June 2023, trust resolves to make the um, company presently entitled to $100,000. And let's say the director of the trustee is the husband and the director of the company is, is the wife, for example. And that's commonly done for asset protection anyway. They don't happen to speak to each other on the 30th of June. It's a particularly busy day. So on what basis does the company even know about it on that day? The trust doesn't need to tell the beneficiary about it on that day. And there's different people who are the controlling minds, albeit their spouses. doesn't mean they talk to each other on the same day. So I can very easily poke a hole in that example anyway. So I think the ATO's more lenient view previously was probably about right. But now we've got at least a, a draft on what the new rules are going to be. Welcome back. So this was TD 2022-D1, which focuses on unpaid present entitlement owed to a company and hence the resulting Division 7A problem. In the next episode, episode 340, let's talk about the other three publications. Taxpayer Alert 2022-1, so TA 2022-1, and this one is already issued. This is not in draft form. And then Draft Taxation Ruling TR 2022-D1, and then also Practical Compliance Guideline PCG 2022-D1. Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney will walk you through these publications around reimbursement arrangements under Section 100A. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.